Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. Welcome everyone to City Beautiful Church. If this is your first time or your hundredth time, my name is Ryan Adams. I'm the uh, pastor here, and I'm really excited. Today, we're starting a new series uh, called Love in Translation. One of my favorite things about a new series is that I get to create a new walk-in playlist of all of the music that I really like, and then kind of the ensuing weeks are people telling me which songs are really obnoxious and have these like weird piercing sounds that I can't hear anymore. You know, you listen to like heavy metal for too long and you lose certain ranges of hearing and so you make the edits and everything. But one of my greatest discoveries that's on here, it's by um, this Swedish group of uh, jazz musicians led by Goran Kafias. Any Goran Kafias fans in here? No? Okay. So Goran Kafias Subtropical Orchestra and it's a bunch of Swedish jazz musicians doing covers of Ethiopian funk music. I mean, who, what a time to be alive, right? Like, that's, this is the world that we live in. I love that. I love that that's a thing that exists and we get to receive it into ourselves and it gets to do something to us. And so when you're listening to the music, when you're walking out, be listening for the Goran Kafias Subtropic Orchestra. Um, it's also a really nice segue into what this series is about, love in translation, that idea of something moving from one culture to another or being taken up in really surprising ways. What we really want to do with this series is continue uh, exploring the big vision of what God has given us for this year. At the beginning of the year, we talked about uh, our vision is to telling God's story with everything that we are. And so we kind of spent the beginning of the year talking about, well, who exactly are we as City Beautiful Church? And so we used our values to kind of hone in on that. But saying basically, you know, our values are sort of the themes uh, of the story that we've been called to tell as a, as a church community. Um, and now we're beginning to kind of turn and go more outwardly fo- focused, that we're starting to look out beyond the walls of our own church and to say, how exactly are we each called to tell God's story? in a way that it brings the world back into relationship with him. And so we're calling this series Love in Translation. Um, Now, I'm going to make a very controversial statement right up front, okay? You ready? I like the Bible. In fact, I might love the Bible. I think it's fascinating. And the more that I dig into it, the more that I'm finding all of this beautiful nuance and the storytelling and the perspectives and the way that, that the, the, the story kind of unfolds and there's this kind of climactic moment of understanding Jesus is the full revelation of who God really is. And then everybody's kind of unpacking it after that. And one of the things that I've really fallen in love with uh, in terms of scripture is this idea of biblical interpretation. Um, this may come to a surprise to you, but Jesus did not read the King James version of the Bible. That was not his favorite translation, although it's you know pretty solid. I was actually telling somebody earlier um, there are more references to unicorns in the King James version than any other Bible translation. Fun fact. Um, but currently, right now, worldwide, there are about seven thousand languages in use. In, in the world as it is today, there's 7,000 languages that are in use today. And 1,500 of those languages have access to the New Testament and the Psalms. 
So when people are translating the Bible into a new language, that's usually where they start. They kind of build out from the Gospels, they add in the Psalms. So there's about 1,500 of those languages have access to the New Testament, and about 650 languages have the complete translated Bible, okay? And so it's really, there's an interesting time for biblical translation, because a lot of the organizations that focus in on that, re- they've got a deadline that in the next couple decades, that we're going to have at least some part of the Bible translated for every single person living today, which is absolutely fascinating. And one of the ongoing uh, discussions within the biblical translation world is what does it mean to have an accurate translation of the Bible? You know, a lot of times we kind of build this spectrum of like, there's, there's literal you know, um, translations of scripture that are kind of as close as you can get to the original Hebrew or Greek or whatever it is, and then ones that are very conversational and they're very approachable in their language, but they're not really specific. Because you know, Hebrew and Greek don't translate to English as a one-to-one word, so one Greek word might take like five English words. And so you read those translations and they're very, very accurate, but it's really hard to read, it's really hard to understand. And there's been this newer conversation in biblical translation about accuracy that's less about the literal word-to-word translation of the scripture, and it's more about the sensitivity to the audience. How are the hearers of the message of the story going to receive what's being said? One of my absolute favorite examples is that in a lot of um, Asian cultures, Jesus does not say, I am the bread of life that we would find in our scriptures. He actually says, I am the rice of life. And this is fascinating because it's not literally accurate because the word literally translated is bread, but it meets the hearers in the way that they need to really hear the message because they're not a bread-based society. They're actually a rice-based society. So understanding Jesus saying, I am the, the grounding of your sustenance, they've chosen to translate it as rice. And I just find that absolutely fascinating. There's examples like that all over the place. And I think translation then is a really interesting way for us to think about our own lives in who we are called to be for God as we kind of stand between as those who receive God's story and have been transformed by it, and then we're to turn around and our divine vocation is to be able to tell that story to the cultures around us. So that's kind of, this this is like, almost like the why of the series that we're about to launch into today. Um, And throughout the next several weeks, we're gonna be talking more about the how. How do we tell this story? So your life is the living text of God's story of love. Your life, who you are, and your gifts, and your passions, and all of your little idiosyncrasies, this story that you've been co-authoring with God, your life is this living text that tells God's story of love, even as it is in progress as you're living it out. And we find this theme even, we're gonna be looking today at 2 Corinthians chapter five, but earlier in that letter, Paul uh, says something very similar to that church in Corinth. He says, you show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. And I love that Paul's reminding them it's, it's not about just what's, what's written down and making sure that you know, all the, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. It's you are actually this living, breathing text. You're this li- living, breathing letter that Jesus has written to the entire world. And that's kind of the perspective that I want us to launch in today. So I'm going to pray and we're going to talk uh, about love and translation. 
So Heavenly Father, uh, we testify to the truth that you're here and that you are with us. Lord, I love uh, the sweetness uh, of times of worship with you. You meet us with such tenderness, with such sensitivity. Um, Lord, I thank you so much for the voices in this room, that as each person contributes their voice, um, the whole is better for it. I just love that, Lord. Thank you for that. So, Father, as we begin this new series, um, would you speak to each one of us about the part that we have to play, to tell your story, to share your good news, to reveal the truth of who you are um, and the reality of how you're rescuing this world? Um, But we ask that you would start with us so that we have a story to tell. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as I said, today we're going to be talking more about the why uh, behind the series as much as we're talking about the how later on. So as Christians, we believe God's story reconciles us to himself, to the world, each other, and ourselves. This is, this is, the, this is the, 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 the dominant narrative. This is the story that we believe as Christians. And one of the things that I've recognized so much uh, in kind of immersing myself in the Bible specifically is how relational so much of it is. And we often lose that aspect. But the more that I dive into it, the more I realize all of these different words that we use in Christianity are really kind of at least pointing to the same thing. Whether we're talking about peace, we're talking about love, we're talking about grace, we're talking about righteousness, these are all actually relational words that, that put us in some sort of standing in our relationship with God, in our relationship with other human beings, in our relationship with creation itself, and then relationship inside of ourselves. Because I think that's the dominant story that we have to tell as Christians. Things are not the way that they're supposed to be. They've been, they've been broken, they've been shattered in some way, and we kind of see that as the place of where sin and evil have entered the world and broken all these things. It broke our relationship with God, it broke our relationship with each other, and, and it broke the relationship that we have with ourselves. So we're walking around kind of carrying these shards. And I think so often that's the kind of the, the dominant questions that we might ask when we begin looking for the bigger picture. Because we're carrying around all these shards of who we are and how the world works. And we're trying to find a place that will bring healing and wholeness. And so much of it, the story of Christianity, is a story of relationship. That we're motivated by connection to God, connection to each other, connection to the earth itself. And I think a lot of times, you know, when we talk about evangelism... That word itself has, uh, leaves a rather bitter taste in our mouths because maybe it's been given to us as something far less than what it truly is. Because a lot of times evangelism re- misses the relational connectivity and substitutes it for something much smaller. That it's more about us getting other people to follow the rules or to join our social club or heaven forbid that we might actually control other people. Sometimes evangelism is given to us where it's talking about saving souls, but almost at the expense of everything else. Like the present moment doesn't really matter. Your body doesn't really matter. The earth doesn't really matter. It's just about, more about like where your soul's going to go when you die. And that reductive uh, idea removes so much of the relational connectivity that we can have with God right now, that we can have in community right now. 
And you know, one of the things that we've really honed in for our church community specifically and who we're called to reach is that I think we're specially equipped to reach maybe what we might call the de-churched or the disenfranchised, people who have grown up in church or they've experienced uh, Christianity for a long time, but there's something in the back of their mind that says, you know, I think that there's something more than what I'm being presented with on the surface. And I don't know about you, but I have a lot of friends that have chosen out of church or they've even chosen out of Christianity because they were offered a religion that had no relational aspect to it. They were offered a religion that had no actual spirituality in it because it was about following the rules and being part of a social club and making sure that you're doing everything just as you're told. And so people leave and they begin looking for stories elsewhere that kind of offer them a place in the universe, that, that give them a sense of value, that give them kind of that larger narrative that ties it all together. And I think one of the things that I love the most about the Christian faith is that we actually have that story. We have the story about how everything is connected. And, and not only that, but God has actually made the first move to draw it all back together to bring us back into relationship with him, to bring us into genuine peace within our species, to give us that intimate connection with our earth, and then finally within ourselves, to, to, to heal us and to bring us back together. And this is uh, what we're gonna be looking at in uh, 2 Corinthians chapter five. So Paul, at this point, he's written several letters to this church that really were just so stuck in this, what we might call, what he would call a worldly point of view. They were kind of bickering with each other and they were using a lot of those standards that we normally use to judge other people about rich and poor and healthy and sick and all of those kind of standards of how the stories that we try to use uh, to make sense of the world. And so Paul's writing a second letter to them and this one's really more kind of like a father writing to his children. They've started to turn things around after the first letter he had written them, and they're, they're really starting to love one another well within their community, and then to love beyond the walls of their community really well. But then there come uh, these people around the, the outside of the community that start whispering in and saying, well, you know, Paul didn't get it all exactly right. There's some other stuff that we need to add to the story. And so Paul writes this letter kind of uh, really more proving his authority. And he hates doing that, but he says it's really important that you understand the position that I'm in and the ministry that I've been called to, um, because you need to know that the, the gospel, the story that I gave you, is full and complete just the way that it is. You don't need to be listening to these outside influencers. And so he begins, I love how he starts off this little passage. He says, if we're out of our mind, as some say, it's for God. If we're in our right mind, it's for you. So anybody, if you ever need to use that as an excuse, as someone accuses you of being crazy, there it is. God, okay, what are you going to do now, you know? It's nice. Uh, for Christ's love compels us, because we are convinced that one died for all, and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So as Paul's telling his own story again, he's saying, I've been caught up in God's story as revealed in Jesus. And that story has begun to define me and to refine me. That story has given me a dramatically different understanding of who I am, not just as Paul, but not just as a Hebrew, but as a human being. That new story has given me a whole different way of understanding who I am. And guess what? If you look at me from the old story, the status quo of the culture around us, then yes, I look a little bit crazy. 
Because you've got to remember, at this time, Paul's you know, trudging around in the rain, and he's been in jail, and he's being beaten all the time, and oftentimes he's starving. And you can imagine that people looking at him would say, whatever he's selling, I'm not interested. This looks insane. This looks dangerous. It seems much easier just to kind of maintain things as they are and to stay where it's safe and secure. And even people were using that as an accusement against Paul. Like, look at his life. He looks like a crazy person. Is that what you really want? And so Paul's kind of standing up and saying, yeah, I am. Okay, let's go there. Let's just admit that, yes, I'm crazy, but I'm crazy because I cannot help myself. I've been caught up in this story. And it's so dramatically redefined who I am. It's dramatically redefined what I do with my life. And I love that because I think the way that Paul chose to live out that story kind of moves beyond reason and logic and reasonableness. Because isn't that what happens to us when we fall in love? You know, love takes us beyond what's reasonable. Love takes us beyond that place of making calculated decisions, of weighing pros and cons. Love compels us to somewhere new. When we're in love, we say, I can't help but live a certain kind of life. And that's really the story that Paul is offering to this church in Corinth. They say, I'm so caught up in God's story of life and how it's redefined me that I'm going to stand on the testament of how I choose to live my life. And he goes on. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. He says, you know, we've left behind the status quo story. We've left behind the way that the empire chooses to define people. We've left behind all of the categories of who's in and who's out and who's deserving and who's undeserving and who's popular and who's unpopular. All these different categories, we've left all of that behind for the sake of God's story. And it's actually changed the way that we see other people. And I love that phrase that, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view in how the world says that we're to value other human beings. Because we've begun to value people the way that God does. Because again, when you're in love with somebody, not only do you gaze upon your beloved, but your beloved actually changes the way that you see everything else. This is why so often it's portrayed in films that everything just seems a little bit brighter. There's just like a few more bluebirds in the air. Whatever it might be, when you're in love, it actually changes the way that you see everybody else. It changes the way that you see what you're called to do and how you move through your day. And so Paul's saying, you know, when we begin to look at other people through the lens of Jesus, we see them in a whole new light. I think someone who was an absolute amazing example of this uh, was the monk Thomas Merton. He was at um, the Abbey of Gethsemane in Kentucky, kind of in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Absolutely phenomenal man, like wrote so much in that era about peacemaking and about God. And, and there's this really neat story that, that Merton tells in one of his books. It was 1958, and he's walking down the street in Louisville, Kentucky, just kind of a normal day. And all of a sudden he has this mystical experience, which is just a fancy way of saying all of a sudden his eyes were opened to see things the way that God did. And he began to look around at all of these people that were just going out with their business and shopping and he just, he was just so overcome with love for them. And this is what he writes in Conjectures of a Guilty Bystander. In Louisville, at the corner of Fourth and Walnut, 
in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people, that they were mine and I theirs, that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness, of spurious self-isolation in a special world, the world of renunciation and supposed holiness. The sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and such a joy to me that I almost laughed out loud. I have the immense joy of being man, a member of a race in which God himself became incarnate. As if the sorrows and stupidities of the human condition could overwhelm me, now I realize what we all are. And if only everybody could realize this, but it cannot be explained, there is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. I've had one or two moments like this in my life. And a lot of times they're kind of in a worship environment where I see somebody and I don't see them the way that I see them. You know what I mean? Like I just, I see the love of God for them. I see within them the image of God and all of the little quirks and idiosyncrasies and all of the normal ways upon which I would look at somebody kind of fade away. And I just find myself overcome with this sense of love for a very specific person. In fact, some of the most powerful ministry in my life has come because of that kind of revelation, that kind of visual connection with another person. And I think Myrn is such a beautiful example of what it looks like when we're caught up in God's story of love and that it translates and transforms us and then we begin to see and act so differently. And I think especially in the terms of evangelism, there's this really powerful difference then we see between people who have maybe never really opened themselves up to that kind of love. And when they do evangelism, it becomes more about prescriptions It becomes more about handing people rules and regulations and trying to get people to agree on all of the doctrinal statements that we've decided that we agree on. It becomes very kind of legalistic and transactional. And those people work really, really hard in order to try to share the message. But then you encounter somebody that you just know on some deep level has spent time with God. You know, like Jesus talks about abiding, just being in God's presence. And these are the kind of people, it's just like the, the reality of God's love just kind of radiates off of them. It, like, it drips off their tongue when they speak. When they shake your hand, you can just feel the warmth of it. And as I've said many times before, you know, when we talk about the qualities of God's character, these aren't things that we question whether or not they are good. We just wish that we saw them more often when we encounter real love and kindness and grace and patience, all of these qualities of God, these fruits of the Spirit, when we see it demonstrated in another person, it becomes attractive to us. It it awakens us to this whole new way of being in the world. And it's almost like those people in, in, in that kind of evangelistic mindset, it's like they almost don't have to try because they're just learning how to be in the presence of God from moment to moment, and it radiates off of them and who they are. I think that is the real goal for all of us, is that we want that encounter with the love of God that transforms us. We don't wanna sign up for a club. We don't wanna get in shouting matches with people trying to convince them that we're right and they're wrong. 
We want to be these vessels of God's love, but it has to begin with us being touched by him in that way that we begin to see everything differently. And that kind of leads us uh, to Paul's conclusion in this little passage here. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Wait, am I? Nope. Sorry. Verse 18. We're going to go a little bit farther back. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he was committed to us the message of reconciliation. The word reconciled, it's yet another one of those biblical words that speaks of relationship. It kind of means to be made friends again, to be brought back into relationship with. And what Paul is saying is the fact that we've been brought back into connection with him is because he has made the first move. And what we're doing is we're less manufacturing reconciliation or manufacturing peace and togetherness is that we're just kind of falling into God's story and allowing him to do the work for us. And it's important to recognize that it's re- we're reconciling the world back to God. We're, we're, we stand in that gap between God and the world And what we're doing is we're kind of drawing people back into the story. It's almost as if in the the story of the prodigal son, if someone had been there for the younger son when he finds himself in the distant land and said, just come back home. You have to trust your father's heart. You have to trust that he's good and that he's not going to punish you. And he's not going to make you work for him like a slave. You have to trust that actually he's crazy about you. And he so desperately wants for you to come home. That's what it means for us to be ministers of reconciliation. And that's what we begin to see when God's story plays out in mankind. When we enter back into proper relationship with God, it determines how we enter into right relationship with creation. All right, I'm going to blow your minds real quick on this whiteboard. You know, being an art teacher, I I actually had to get tested on how well I could write on a whiteboard. And that was in like... I don't know, 2007. It seemed kind of redundant then, but we're going to go back to it now. So this is, to me, this is the key to understanding all of Scripture, especially the Old Testament. Okay, you ready? There are two major themes in the Old Testament, two invitations, worship and justice. And it has to do with connection, okay? Again, they're just all the words are about connection and relationship. So if we can understand, we've essentially, we've got God, and we'll put him at the top because he's the best, and then... There's yourself, there's you, and you're all right, you're all right. And then there's like everybody else, okay? God, self, and others, okay? These are, the, these are the connections in our life. And a lot of times, you know, again, when we're thinking in those transactional terms, we read the Old Testament and we go, oh, it's just a bunch of weird rules and regulations that seem kind of unnecessary and redundant. But actually, for the, for the Jewish people, these were invitations to intimacy. These were invitations to relationship. And so essentially, anything that was about the relationship between God and self is called worship. And that's what worship is. It's just recognizing God is our source. God gets to define us. It's God's story that we're caught up in and it saves and rescues us. And so there's all of these biblical um, invitations to worship. Even in the Torah, some of those weird rules about like your, what you can eat and how you prepare your meals and about like what fabrics you wear. And we look at that and say, like, this is so weird and seems constricting. No, it's actually creating these sacred rhythms in their life where they acknowledged that they were connected to God. So 
it became an act of worship to make sure that cotton doesn't touch nylon or whatever it might be. And so all of that's called worship. And then the other connection that's spoken of in the Old Testament is called justice. And this is how we relate to other people. Once God has defined us, how do we relate to other people? And so you even look at the Ten Commandments. The first couple commandments are commandments of worship. That when we get our relationship right with God, it actually turns around and dictates how we relate to other people. And so the the second half of the the Ten Commandments are all about how we relate to each other. Kind of giving us the baseline of, hey, don't kill anybody if you can help it. Like if you can get through the day without murdering anyone, that's a pretty good baseline and we're going to start building from there. And so there's two invitations in the entire Old Testament. And then what happens is they begin to name the disconnections, and this is what we call sin. And there's only two sins in the entire Bible. Isn't that easy and convenient to remember? Weren't you worried about having to memorize all the different sins and the rules? It's only two, okay? And here's what they are, because they're the counter narratives for these. When we disconnect from God, we're no longer seeing God as our source, that we're in relationship with him, it's called idolatry. And I'm gonna make sure I spell it correctly because a teacher in the morning informed me that I did not. Idolatry. And so what is idolatry? It's going, okay, Yahweh, someone tells you like, Yahweh, he's our source. He's our connection. We have a relationship with him. And someone says, no, there's this half man, half fish stone over there that I'm going to check out. And so they would enter into idolatry and say, this half man, half fish rock, he's my God. He's my source. He defines who I am. And so we see this wrestling within Israel of trying to figure out how do we stay connected to God, Yahweh, as the true God, as our true source, and do away with all of the idols that we have in life. And what happens so often is whenever Israel enters into idolatry, injustice is not far behind. That's our second kind of sin, injustice. And that is when we begin to determine how other people are valued and then how we're going to treat them. And it usually means that someone's getting speared at the end of the day. That's what happens when we enter into injustice. But it's directly related to the idolatry in our lives. And so we believe as Christians, when we enter back into right relationship with God, it actually sorts out our relationship with other people because we no longer regard them in those ways of who's in and who's out, who's worthy and who's unworthy, because we actually begin to see people through the lens of God's love. And so the story is all about bringing us back into that relationship to mean what it, to be a human, the way that God designed us, and then it gives us this divine vocation of going back out and telling that story in a way that it draws us all back together. And so we are called to translate God's love to the world around us in order to bring it all back together. That's our divine vocation. In Judaism, they have this beautiful phrase, tikkun olam, And it depends on who's translating it, but sometimes it comes across as to repair the world or to heal the world or even to perfect the world. But for Jews, the perfection, the healing of the world begins by purging idolatry. We have to to knock down all of these false gods and we have to bring people into living relationship of Yahweh, the one true God. And then from that place, Jews see their vocation is then going about the process of helping God to rescue and redeem the world. And they see that first and foremost through prayer, that we're in intimate connection with God. They see it through good deeds. And perhaps most importantly, they see it as being a model society. This is what it looks like when God's king. This is what it looks like when God determines how human beings interact with one another. And Paul kind of takes that divine vocation of Israel and he hands it off to the church. He says, now it's your job. 
If you look at yourselves, you're, you're a ragtag group of people that have been rescued into God's story, but you're to be this living example of what it looks like when God rescues and redeems and repairs the world. And so this is kind of how he finishes out that passage in 2 Corinthians. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love that Paul uses this example of being an ambassador. Because what does an ambassador do? An ambassador stands in the gap and says, how can I be the best representation of my king while also being authentic and sensitive to the culture to which I've been sent? That's the job of an ambassador, to be fully present, to be living in and among the people, but still knowing where her allegiance lies. And Paul says, we are Christ's ambassadors. We recognize through worship that we have this authority of recognizing that God is the one true source and that he's up to something in the world. But then it comes through the sensitivity to the culture around us, to those who are listening to the story, to administer justice, to do good deeds, to be the kind of community that demonstrates this is what it looks like when God brings it all back together. And I think that's the challenge for us today. Do you believe that you have been called and crafted to this specific place? to this specific time in history, that it's not an accident that you're here, but that God is doing something within you where he's equipping you with these gifts and these passions and these relationships and all of these different things so that you can be his ambassador in a culture that desperately needs to be redefined according to his love. And ultimately, this story is for everyone. It transcends cultural divides and and race and gender, all of these dividing walls of hostility that we have as human beings, the story of God transcends all of them. And when it begins to meet those different dividing walls of hostility, we see some really surprising things happen in the human story. It's not a philosophy, it's not a lifestyle, and it's certainly not a rule book. It's about love. It's about us being compelled by love to say, I can't help it. I can't help myself. I'm so in love with the God that's revealed in Jesus that I can't help but tell that story to everyone I encounter. So I want you to invite you to stand with me. And we're gonna do a little exercise here. Taking this idea from Paul where he says, you know, we know... Uh, From now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Taking this story of Thomas Merton, who just, God just opened his eyes to see everybody the way that he sees them. We're going to take those two ideas and weave them together. I want you to close your eyes. And I want you to picture your worst enemy. Who's Who's the person on this planet that you just cringe when you see them? Oh, they're the worst. Who's that person that you just, you have the hardest time loving them, you have the hardest time valuing them, you certainly don't see them the way that God does. And perhaps because of the way that you see them, it's led you to treat them in some ways that are rather unjust. Maybe you've discounted them. Maybe you've uh, excluded them. Maybe uh, you've advanced against them rather aggressively. Whatever it is, I just want you to get that face in front of you. 
and I'm going to pray, and we're just going to ask the Lord to say, Lord, I, I no longer want to regard this person from a worldly point of view. I want to see them the way that you see them. I want to see them with your love. I want to see how much we belong to one another because of what you have done for us through Christ. Because we have to experience this first before we can begin to go out into the world and to tell that story. So Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you so much for the honor that you've given us, this divine vocation, to be your ambassadors, um, to, to be your representatives, to recognize that you're our king and you tell us where to go and you send us to some really amazing places. So Father, just in this moment, I pray that you would help us to see this person in our lives the way that you see them. That, that you would strip away all of our, our grudges, um, all of our distaste, all of our frustrations. That you'd strip all of those things off them, off the surface, like this grime that's just built up in our impression of them. And that you'd reveal to us who they truly are. It's not about them being worthy or unworthy. It's about them being your beloved. It's about them bearing your image. Yeah, Father, show us these people the way that you see them. Thank you, Lord. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.